Okay, should be fine now. All right, so um, last week we were talking about the fact that Paul had been in Thessalonica planting the church there for only three Sabbaths. That's how long it took him to plant the church. And then he was traumatically removed because of persecution and found himself, along with uh, Silas and Timothy, in Berea. And then he went on to Athens and then from there on to Corinth. Um, and he was super anxious about the church because he'd only had three Sabbaths there. Now, I don't know what you would choose if you only had three sermons to preach. I don't know what you would choose, but he'd not been there long at all. So he was very concerned for the church that in the face of persecution and just daily challenges and the fact that they didn't know much about Jesus, that they would just shrivel up and die. And he wants to encourage them, and he wants to invest in their discipleship. He wants them to go from a little uh, seedling that's just sprouted, which is super vulnerable. He wants them to grow into a strong tree, and more than that, into a tree that produces fruit, where disciples are making disciples. And so he sends Timothy to go to see them because he can't go himself. And what we have in this letter to the Thessalonians is some of the things that Timothy has told Paul about the church as it is in Thessalonica. And so there's specific responses and specific concerns that Paul is going to speak about. So I've got the light coming through the window, just in the wrong place. Um, so we are currently in Advent Okay, not much cheering. Uh, obviously, you are super weary and fed up already. Uh, and Advent is just about a time to prepare and a time to get ready. Please put your hand up if you are prepared for Christmas. Okay, could you just stand up? Stand up. Right. The rest of us are coming to your house. <laughs> okay. Most of us are not prepared yet. I mean, it's like, oh my word, it's the 1st of December. Maybe we should start thinking about it now. We're not prepared. But I wonder how many of us are prepared for the second coming of Jesus. Because we're going to jump over a little part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and go on to the second part of that, which I read. You know, Paul was investing in their discipleship in the chapter 4, verse 1. He says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And he goes on to talk to them a little bit about how they can live to underline probably the things he's already said to them. But I want us to talk about the second coming as we look to the first coming of Jesus. I want us to think about how we prepare and get ready. Advent is a great time. It's a really good time to talk about death. <laughs> or, or maybe it isn't. It's a great time to talk about death. Because we're going to talk a little bit about death this morning. I hope that's okay with you. I mean, lots of you have turned up, so I'm assuming that it is. Just over a year ago, uh, at the end of the summer, my former colleague and uh, minister of this church when I started here died from cancer. He was just 60. And one week later, my very good friend, who had been one of my lecturers when I was at college, had remained fantastic friends. Their daughter was a bridesmaid at our wedding. 
They'd been away to Paris to celebrate their 35th wedding anniversary and spent a few days there. And they got back at 11 o'clock at night. And the following morning, he got up and had a shower. And that was it. Died of a heart attack in the shower just immediately. And so my friend Ro has been asking a lot of questions about death and more particularly about the resurrection body. She's desperate to know what he looks like, what he'll be like, what it will be like to be in heaven. And she wrote these words in the blog that she's writing. And if only I ever have this level of wisdom, I will be grateful. Because in his diary for that day at 11 o'clock in the morning was an appointment with the vicar of their church. They'd just moved up to Sheffield. And he was going to meet with the vicar to talk about how he could exercise his ministry. He's an ordained Anglican minister. How he could exercise his ministry in the new church in Sheffield. At 11 o'clock, the vicar turned up at their house. But Robert wasn't there anymore. And these are the, the words that he said to Roe whilst they were gathered around Robert's body in their home. He said this. When Robert woke up this morning... The Holy Spirit was alive and active in his life. The Holy Spirit hasn't left him, but is still active, preparing Robert for his resurrection body. Oh, to be so wise. Now, we don't talk much about this, do we? And yet all of us will experience it at some point in our lives. We just have to wait a bit longer than some. We don't talk much about resurrection bodies, although, frankly, I'm really looking forward to mine. <laughs> and we don't talk that much about the second coming of Jesus anymore. But these Thessalonians, they had lots of questions about death and the, uh, sorry, and the return of Jesus. Sorry, that was what I meant, the return of Jesus. You see, Paul has spoken to them in these three messages about the return of Jesus. He said, Jesus is coming back. Jesus who died, who rose again, this same Jesus, he's coming back. And then he's torn away from them, and they're left with all sorts of questions. See, what happened was that in the period of time between when Paul was with them and Timothy came to them, some of the believers who were part of the fellowship had died. And now they're feeling really worried. They're thinking, oh no, these believers have died. Perhaps they're going to miss out on the return of Jesus altogether. That's what they're worried about. And so they want to know from Paul what happens. What happens when you've died? What happens when you're still alive? What happens when Jesus comes back again? And Paul speaks to them so, so well. And I love this verse. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. He wants them to be reassured. He wants them to be reassured. This is one of the best passages in the whole New Testament. He wants them to be reassured. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, when he says falling asleep, he doesn't actually mean falling asleep. 
Now, I know that some of you have fallen asleep during the services. I know that because I'm standing here and I can see you. <laughs> He's not talking about that. Falling asleep is a euphemism that is used across the ancient world. It just means died, but it's a bit more gentle. And it's also kind of natural. We will all die. He also says we ought to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We will grieve. Grief is normal. Grief is right. Grief is about love and loss and the inability to control circumstances. Grief is a process. Grief is like the waves that come on the beach and some are big and some are smaller and they come and they go and they come again. Never does it say that we should not grieve because grief is about relationship and about being human. What he does say is that we don't need to grieve like those who have no hope. I have taken more funerals than I can probably count in my 27 years of ministry. Many of the ones that I do and have done here are for those who have no faith. In fact, they are very specific. They say, we would like to have a funeral. We don't want any of that religious stuff. I have a bit of a reputation for doing non-religious funerals, which I find quite amusing. And we talk. And we discuss what that means. And in fact, I often have better conversations with those who say they've got no faith than the ones who want a hymn and a prayer. But when I get the privilege of leading a funeral for someone who knows Jesus, oh my goodness... It is so, so different. I have done some really difficult funerals, really painful. But when someone is there and they know that the person that they love is with Jesus, everything is different. There is grief, of course there is. There's pain, there's questions, there's anger and hurt and all of that. But there is also hope and there is also joy because this is about somebody who's with Jesus. When I went to John Lewis's funeral in Northern Ireland, he's got five children. Several of them stood up on the platform in front of hundreds of people and talked with hope about their dad. He was 60. At Robert Willoughby's funeral, both his kids stood up and they talked about their love and relationship with their dad. But they talked about their hope and faith in Jesus as well. We grieve, but not as those without hope. And Paul goes on to talk about, to this church, what's happened to those who've fallen asleep? And what's going to happen to you who haven't fallen asleep yet? So he thinks with them about the return of Jesus. And in verse 13 and 14, these are the kind of tombs they had in Thessalonica. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We die in Christ. If you know Jesus now, today, if you've submitted your life to him as Savior and Lord today, then when you fall asleep forever... You are still in Christ. Death is not the end. It is never the end. It is just a sleep. And you will wake up in Christ, in his presence, forever. And that certainty is based on um, four, verse 14, that Jesus died and Jesus rose. Jesus has conquered death. He has opened the way to heaven for us. 
Our identity in life and in death is bound up in him. He died, we die, he rose again, we rise again. He is the guarantee of our hope. And hope is not, I hope that I might get the jumper that I want for Christmas. By the way, I don't want a jumper for Christmas. Um, (laughs) I hope we might... I hope that we might get to have a holiday in the Maldives next year. That's not happening either, by the way. (laughs) This is what Paul calls an anchor for our souls. It is a solid, certain hope. It is definite, not in the way that we often use hope. And so those who are asleep, he's saying to the church, don't worry about them. In fact, Worry less about them than everyone else because they're going to rise first with Christ. So don't worry about that. They're definitely not going to miss out. And then he says, let's talk about those of us who are awake, who are survivors at the time of Christ's coming. He says, you're going to have to wait in line because the dead in Christ, they're going to rise first. And you'll have to wait your turn. He says that those who are left will somehow be airlifted into the presence of Christ for a great reunion. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm not great with heights. I mean, is it going to be okay? Something supernatural will occur on that day when Jesus comes back again. And so we have this image here where Jesus is coming down from heaven, returning to earth, and then everyone who's in Christ is going up into heaven. And I used to think that maybe we'd miss each other. (laughs) And Jesus would arrive on earth and all the believers would be up in the heaven somewhere and it would be really confusing. You see, the language that Paul is using here, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. That's quite loud, I think. I mean, a loud command is quite loud. Archangels, I imagine, are pretty loud. And trumpets, shofars, the ram's horn, I've got one in my office. They're really loud as well. So this is loud. You are not going to miss this. The language that he's using here is the language of a royal visit. It isn't the word apocalypsis, which means to be revealed. It's the word parousia, which is about arrival or visit. It's about an official coming or a royal. And you know when the royals come or came more historically, those people would go ahead of them and they would make announcements. Hear ye, hear ye, the royal is coming, you know, all that. They would shout, they would blow trumpets to make sure that everyone knew who was coming and that they were coming right now. That trumpet call is mentioned in 1 Corinthians in 15 and Jesus uses it in Mark 13 and 14. We know that the coming of Jesus is coming with trumpets. I'm looking forward to that. I think that will be good. That he is coming on the clouds of heaven. And it takes us back to Daniel, to the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, where he talks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, this is something that throughout Scripture, in every prophetic um, encounter, that has been had in the things that Jesus says and even into the letters of Paul, there's this sense that when Jesus comes, it will be this amazing 
royal revelation visit with sound and trumpets and archangels shouting all over the place and everyone will know. You know, when the royal family came to visit, what would happen is that a welcome party would be sent out. So lots of people would be sent out to meet the royals as they were coming in. So you'd get this place of encounter and then everyone would go back to where they came from. Now that's starting to make a bit more sense, isn't it? So in that moment, we are caught up. The word that's from the Latin is the word we get rapture from. So we were caught up into the sky to meet him. And then we see this sense that on the earth, there is a new heavens and a new earth. So we come back to earth again and the Lord restores everything that is. And on that moment, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because they'll see Jesus for who he really is. And we will be forever in the presence of the Lord. Good? Hard, isn't it, to imagine It's really hard to imagine. I just think of every moment where I have a glimpse of grace. You know that thing that kind of warms your heart? Maybe it's somebody who's come to know Jesus for the first time. Somebody who's been free from debt. Somebody who's not hungry anymore. Someone who's found a friend and belongs. Every glimpse of grace. Every every glimpse of of glory that I've ever experienced in worship. Every sense of the presence of Jesus that I've ever known. And like multiply them by several billion. And that's something of what it will be like on that day to be in the presence of Jesus together with everybody else from every tribe and tongue and nation and generation to be in his presence together with him. You know, this also kind of has parallels, and we've talked about this before with a Jewish wedding. That's just Thessalonica, by the way. Where in the past, and sometimes still in the present, in some countries and cultures, the bridegroom and the bride would be betrothed to one another. And then the bridegroom would go back to his parents' house to build some extensions. And when the extension was ready, the bridegroom would go back to get the bride. Remember Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. That's because he's the bridegroom and he's building the extensions. And he's still building the extensions because there's still people coming to know Jesus who need an extension or something like that. But when it's all ready, the bridegroom comes to get the bride and as he goes through the streets of the village people sound trumpets and people call out come on the bridegroom's coming the wedding feast is about to begin and all the people gather and they run with the bridegroom to the house of the bride and then the wedding celebration happens it's exactly what Jesus talks about it's exactly what we see in Revelation the wedding feast of the lamb that the bridegroom is ready and he comes to get his bride the church the church of Christ and on that day we will be gathered to him in his presence to celebrate the wedding of the lamb and Paul says in verse 18 encourage one another that simply means to put courage into someone 
And maybe when we look around us at our nation right now, yeah, another fatality and atrocity in London yesterday. A stabbing in The Hague, which thankfully didn't end in, in death. Knife crime, fake news, lies, more lies. And all sorts of just worsening reality in our society. And we see the violence across the globe and we see the war and we see the ever-increasing famine and environmental disaster and water shortage for many and floods for others. Sometimes we need someone to say, have courage, Jesus is coming back. There will be a day. There will be a day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, when we feel scared, when we feel uncertain. This is not a horror story, Jesus coming back. This is a hope story. We don't talk about it as something terrifying, but as something that brings hope. We just need to be ready, don't we? So we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And then he goes on in chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates. See, I like a good date in my calendar. I like to know what's happening. I'm kind of a planner. I like to be organized. I don't like things to be uncertain. I like to know. And I hate living with the tension of not knowing about things, and that's just how life is sometimes, isn't it? So when I read that, if I was reading that for the first time, I'd be going, oh, great, he's going to tell me. We don't need to write to you. <sighs> he doesn't tell us. What he says is, be ready. And the question is this, are you ready? Are you ready? Because Paul's words are, be ready, the Thessalonians, the letter to the Thessalonians doesn't spend much time discussing it or worrying about it. He says, live in the readiness of the Lord coming back and make sure everyone else is ready for when he comes. Paul had told the Thessalonians, Jesus is coming back soon. And you know what? They believed him. That's why they were so worried about the people who died. Because when Paul said soon, they thought he meant soon. Jesus is coming back soon. Do you believe me? You see, you don't because 2,000 years have gone past. But actually, Jesus has always been coming back soon because we don't know when he's coming back, so we must always be ready. When I was a teenager, we used to go and um, do outreaches at um, local churches. Um, and we quite often used to do this song um, it's a bit scary, really, but it didn't seem that bad when I was 40. Um, it's a Larry Norman song, and it's called uh, Wish We'd All Been Ready. And, it, and let me read to you the words, because you'll realize how shaped I am by this. <laughs> Life was filled with guns in war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. Not much has changed, has it? I wish we'd all been ready. The children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. That bit's not too bad, all right? A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. I don't know if it shaped my life, but it definitely shaped my teenage years. 
this sense that some will be ready and some won't. It gives an urgency, doesn't it, to sharing the good news of Jesus that we want everyone to be ready. We don't want anyone to feel afraid on that day. We want everyone to be filled with hope and celebration that Jesus is coming again and it's all going to get sorted out. It's going to be good. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be everything that God ever intended for this planet. Are we ready? And if we're not ready, and if others aren't ready, why not? Whose responsibility is it? It's mine, isn't it? And yours. Those who know Jesus, it's our responsibility to make sure that everyone else is ready. How can they believe if they've never heard? How can they believe if no one ever tells them? Are we willing to take something of that responsibility and that God's grace and his lordship and the amazing things that he does in revealing himself to people to make sure that people are ready. Paul goes on and says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's the problem with thieves, isn't it? I mean, they don't send you a card a week in advance and say, I'll be turning up at 10 o'clock on uh, the 3rd of December. So that you can be prepared and put extra locks on your door. They don't tell you. They just turn up when you're not expecting it. He says, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. You know, we, we are still trying to persuade ourselves that everything is fine. Our politicians are still trying to persuade us that everything is fine. I think we know that everything's not fine. I think when we look around us at the signs of the times, we know that everything is not fine. And Jesus said, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, and when you see famines extend and the earth decay, then be ready. And we need to look and see what is going on around us. Because... Jesus coming again is inevitable, like labor pains. I remember the first labor pain I had when Joel was about to be born, second child, for those of you that don't know me so well. And I just thought, I don't want to do this again. In fact, I think I said, I don't want to do this again. So I vaguely kind of remembered what it would be like the first time. You know, when... Sorry, Elle. <laughs> when... When labor pain starts, it is inevitable. There will be birth. It's how it is. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, look around you. The labor pains are starting. Jesus coming will happen. And he says, be awake. You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you. Like a thief, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. He says, be awake. He makes this contrast between light and darkness. We are children of the light. Those of us who know Jesus, who've given our lives to him, we've gone from darkness to light. We've changed kingdoms. We've changed allegiances. Because we are in the light, we see stuff. Jesus coming back shouldn't be a surprise because we're in the light, because we know that he's coming. 
It says those without Christ live in darkness and when Christ comes they won't be ready and darkness here is related to ignorance. Now ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is about knowledge or lack of knowledge. Our eyes have been opened and we need to make sure that others are not living in ignorance without the knowledge that Jesus is Saviour and Lord and coming back. And he says as well, after that, he says, so let us be alert and self-controlled. This is my favorite um, image of alertness. <laughs> Especially the, the sentry ones or the guards, meerkats. You know, they're always standing on a slight little rock and they're always looking and they're, they're like kind of satellite dishes in terms of the sound. You know, they're just constantly alert all the time, changing their position for what they can hear. Paul says, be alert. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open to what God is saying through the things that we see and hear around us. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's making a point, by the way. We know that we can get drunk in the daytime as well. But he's talking about this sense of darkness. He makes this comparison there. You know, last night, Caitlin was coming back from Oxfordshire and all, all the trains were all over the place because there's something going on. And so she had to go via York and then she had to go York to Leeds and then that train was super delayed as well. And then when she got to Leeds, I texted her and said, are you, you okay? And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. There's lots of drunk people here. And then she got on the train, um, half past 10 train from uh, Leeds to Skipton. And... Um, I was just seeing where she was on our Google tracker because it's good to keep track of your children. And uh, I was like, um, why is she stopping so long in Kirkstall? That's a bit odd. So I text her, are you okay? She's like, yeah, a massive fight's broken out on the train. They're calling the police. So they had to go back to Kirkstall whilst the police got on the train and da-da-da. Anyway, she was fine. But it's this thing, isn't it? We know that drunkenness causes other stuff to happen. Our minds are slower, our vision may be blurred, our speech may be slurred, and we can't walk in a straight line. And that we are not alert, and we don't behave in an alert and sensible manner. Paul's comparing, saying, don't be like that, be alert. Jesus tells two parables. One is of the watchful servant, which picks up the meerkat idea. I don't think Jesus picks up the meerkat idea, but you know what I mean. And he tells them one of the ten foolish virgins as well, where the bridegroom hasn't come and they've got the lamps and they can't be bothered to go and get any more oil for the lamps. So the lamps go out. When the bridegroom appears, they're not ready. It's the same story. Don't stop watching. Don't stop waiting. Don't stop being alert and seeing and being ready and making sure people around us are ready. And then he goes on to say this. It's very temperamental today. Do you want to just move it on, Martin? Oh, there we go. He says, be armoured. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as our breastplate and a helmet of hope of salvation. Oh, sorry, and a hope of salvation as a helmet. 
Be self-controlled. There's lots of verses about that. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working within us, being self-controlled. It's something that should be normal to those who love Jesus. Put on faith and hope as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Reminds us of 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Put on the breastplate, the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. Make sure that your heart is defended against anxiety, against the darkness, against the arrows of the enemy, against all the things that come against you. Make sure your heart is guarded and make sure your mind is guarded by hope. When you think, I'm scared of this, I don't know if it's going to happen. When stuff around you, perhaps it's family and friends where there's challenge and sadness and disappointment, put hope on as your helmet of salvation that one day we will see Jesus face to face. That one day we will see each other. I just noticed that when I was reading it. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. We don't know how it's all going to pan out exactly, but there's a sense that one day we will be together with him again, whatever the present may hold. And so he finishes with this, be assured you say, if you're in Christ, there is no doubt for you. I don't know if maybe I should say that again. If you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, if you have given your life to him, there is no doubt about your eternal life with him in the presence of Jesus. I'm not a very good Christian. It's not about that. Well, I've made mistakes. It's not about that. Well, I struggle sometimes with my faith. It's not about that. It's about the fact that you are in Christ. Your identity is in him. And if today you're sitting there going, well, I don't know. I don't actually know what on earth she's talking about this morning, but it sounds like it would be better that I was in than out. (laughs) In is really straightforward. In is saying to Jesus, thank you. I love you, you've died for me in my place, so I don't need to die, but I can live forever. I can know your forgiveness, your life and my life. So you're my Lord, you're going to be king of my life now, not me anymore. You're going to be Lord, not me anymore. And you can do that today. There's no waiting. And it's just a, today is not a once-for-all opportunity. You could do it later if you think about it later, or you could do it tomorrow if you think about it tomorrow. But hey, why not do it now? Because if we are in Christ, we are in him forever. We are assured we have hope forever. When he comes, we're going to be in that party of airlifted people (laughs) to meet him face to face. And he finishes by saying, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And that's why I chose this picture, because... It's true for us individually, but together we are under the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. We need to encourage each other. You know, there's not a huge amount of good news these days, is there? Encourage each other that this is not all there is. Encourage each other that one day Jesus will make everything new, that one day there will be justice. 
that one day you'll see that person that you love, who you miss so much now, you'll see them again face to face. That one day all your concerns and anxieties and fears and worries and burdens and illnesses and aches and pains will all be gone. And there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death in the presence of Jesus. And perhaps we need to say those things a little bit more to each other, remembering that Jesus is coming soon. And soon is one of those useful words to say to a toddler or teenager. And sometimes it's a useful one to say to the church. Jesus is coming soon. Amen.